Good evening. I'm going to start this sermon in a little bit of a dangerous way. So uh, let's see how this goes. My in-laws, including my wife, are very interesting drivers. (laughs) Not horrible, just interesting. Some hit parked objects, and some have an interesting interpretation of following distance. What I find most interesting is the way that one of them drives on the freeway. Now, we all know that the rules of the road dictate that the left lane is for passing, and otherwise, you stay as far right as possible. But not for this person. They get to the far left and stay at a steady 60 miles an hour, no matter what the traffic. That is their lane and that's the end of it. This may infuriate some of you, but traffic specialists have found that in traffic-prone regions, that's how people begin to drive. Often, the opportunity to pass is limited, and all lanes end up clogged anyways. So picking a lane and staying in it is often what driving comes to. But just because that's how our culture drives, doesn't mean that it's right. The traffic laws clearly dictate that it's not legal to park in the left lane and that you should be in the right lane unless you're passing. To some people, that's just not the case. And not just some people, but our entire Western Washington culture of driving. Traffic eventually comes down to driving in whatever way is going to get you there alive and fast with minimal sitting in Boeing traffic. But does that mean that the culture of driving is correct? And that the objective rules of driving just no longer apply? It may seem silly, but this idea has become pervasive among our approach to religion in progressive cultures like ours. And it introduces interesting questions to how we as Christians are supposed to enlighten others and thrive in such a society. Today, as Dan introduced, we'll be talking about the idea of pluralism and how we as Christians can successfully navigate this cultural philosophy. All right, now let's begin with my favorite topic, semantics. When talking about the idea of pluralism or relativism, some ideas and thoughts automatically arise. Ideas like tolerance, anti-fundamentalism, liberal college campus, and my personal favorite, snowflake. But what actually is pluralism? Well, pluralism is not inherently a bad thing. Pluralism all by itself simply mean when two or more states, that is, things, attributes, groups, or ideas, coexist. It's the idea that not everything, or everyone, must be the exact same to simply exist. That two or more ways of being can be done at the same time. So why are we talking about pluralism here at church? We're exploring this idea today because there are two types of pluralism to be aware of. Social pluralism is the practice of different peoples with different races, 
ethnicities, religions, political views, etc., all living together. This is something everyone, we as Christians especially, want to strive for. But then there is ideological pluralism. This is what happens when the goal of social harmony bleeds into our ideology. It is a pervasive worldview in today's society that says it doesn't matter what you believe in and that we all go to heaven anyways. This is what we as Christians should be pushing against. To illustrate, I'd like to go with an old parable that most of us have heard before. Imagine three blind men standing around an elephant. Each one is tasked with feeling around the elephant and determining what it is that he is perceiving. The first man goes up, feels the strong, rugged legs of the elephant, and proudly declares that what he is feeling is a tree trunk, tall and sturdy. The second man takes hold of the elephant's trunk, twisting and prehensile, and deduces that the object is, in fact, a snake. The third grabs hold of a tusk and says that it must be a rock with its inorganic hardness and pointed end. What all three men have deduced is not correct, but we, as the observer, know that what they are feeling is an elephant and that each man has described the facet of a greater being or whole. Pluralism believes that each religion sees a part of the elephant but fails to understand that it is a unique creature all itself. How could any human hope to fully comprehend the mysteries of the spiritual anyways? Pluralism allows all of us to be equally right and wrong. Each religion in this worldview gets about a B plus. No one is so wrong that they fail but we're not A-plus accurate either. But most importantly, we all get to pass the class. It is admittedly a beautiful perspective and not only offers hope to all, but seems to be the answer to questions like, how do we coexist with different religions? How does religion treat those whose culture excluded the possibilities of other spiritualities? What happens to the uncontacted tribes who have never even heard the name of Jesus? How can two people be so sure of their respective beliefs, claiming to have spiritual experience and knowing the truth? Now that we have a sense of the worldview we're approaching, we might begin to see how this relates to the Pacific Northwest. The Seattle culture is uniquely filled with culturally diverse peoples vastly different from one another, yet uniquely related. I, a Christian white male, can go to the pho shop on state where there is a Vietnamese lady standing behind a laughing Buddha statue. We can exchange a pleasant conversation, and I can get one of my favorite dinners. No conflict, no jihad. One must also consider that as one of the technological epicenters of America, we are a naturally progressive people. Our culture is one of forward thinking. Lawmakers looking to solve the homeless crisis in a humane and compassionate way. University professors doing cutting-edge biomedical research. And an emergent arts and cultural movement. 
When the spirit of innovation and progress is that strong, it's only logical that it would become our philosophy and that religions would be analyzed with the same eyes. Eyes that seek to push the world forward into new and better places, tolerant and free of the supposed hate that has plagued religion since its conception. But here's the sad news. Pluralism is unsustainable. During the next few weeks, we'll be focusing around that word, unsustainable. Sarah, the clerk lady in the office, will go on to talk about the unsustainability of our culture of community. And Shay, one of our elders, will close with the unsustainability of our relationship to technology. But today, we'll be focusing on the unsustainability of the pluralistic worldview, the philosophy that everyone is equally right and wrong. So how do Christians approach the problem of pluralism in our relationships with outsiders? The first step to finding Jesus is admitting that there is, in fact, one right way. But how do we evangelize in a culture that charges us with intolerance? And how do we do it in the way that Christ intended? I think the primary issue is to understand what the true goal is. In this clash between Christianity and the culture of pluralism, we are, trying, we are seeing Christians try to prove the truth that God is out there and exclusive, while pluralism is trying to prove that everyone is both right and wrong. But that's completely irrelevant. Our goal as Christ followers is to bring people into relationship with Jesus through repentance, by first knowing of his status and sacrifice by faith. That word, faith, automatically disqualifies us from proving anything. We have evidence, and we have experience, and we have anecdotes, but we cannot prove the existence of anything spiritual. We must have faith. When we're talking about pluralism, you're not engaged in a debate about proof or evidence, but about logic. Can two mutually competing ideas be true at the same time? What we really should be focusing on is, is my faith unique and incompatible with other religions? Allow me an example. I cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is the holy word of God. To an outsider, it would seem silly to say that Christianity is the one true way because of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is silly because as a Christian, I believe in Jesus. Therefore, I believe in what he says. But someone who does not has no reason to believe anything he says. By this reasoning, John 14, 6 has no merit in this context between a believer and an unbeliever. Both parties must recognize the authority of the sources for truth before any dialogue can really begin. So, what can I prove? I can prove that as a Christian, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he said he was. Therefore, that John 14, 6 has credibility. This hints to the primary linchpin 
for the philosophy of pluralism. You see, pluralism is not supported by historical data or some tangible evidence or even a person like Jesus, but is based simply on personal beliefs. It supposes that the world's religions can be either fit together like puzzle pieces to point to a greater truth, or it asserts asserts that none are true while all are true. But when none of the puzzle pieces are built on facts, and all of it is simply another's belief, then how could you possibly build a concrete answer? Pluralism recognizes billions of different people's subjective beliefs as authority instead of something tangible or objective. Pluralism's view that everyone is right sounds wonderful. But the fact is, I believe in the credibility of the Bible and the assertion of John 14:6. To say that my beliefs allow for any authority other than Jesus's is to say that I don't believe in this scripture. But how can you make religions harmonize when you must define what other people believe for them? You cannot simply cut it out and take the parts of Jesus that jive with everyone else. What this means for the pluralistic ideal is that you must claim to know more than every one of these religions and have for yourself the missing ingredient to make them all fit. And that's just arrogance. What makes you the man that can see? and not just another blind man scratching around an uncomfortable elephant. In a roundabout way, pluralism becomes its own religion. Kind of like when we did the, the Rise of the Nun series, and Rick talked about how spiritual but not religious becomes its own religion. Anyways, pluralism is much the same way. No one is able to prove anything, and we end up relying on faith. We end up believing different things, just like any other two religions already in the world today. This religion is unsustainable because it is forced to either reevaluate itself with every new person and perspective it meets, or it defaults to arrogance, becoming the thing it sought to eliminate, an all-knowable, exclusive truth claim. Pluralism is unsustainable, and it becomes self-refuting. In seeking a world where everyone is right and all things fit together, it ends up seeing itself the only one who is truly right. That idea is not plural. It's exclusive. What we've done is show that mutually exclusive beliefs can never be mushed together. But what about the idea that it doesn't matter what religion you practice and that you can lead a happy, healthy life doing what's best for you? We call this subjective truth. Many would try to convince you that you should do whatever is best for you and that what makes you happy is what's right. But we as Christians are called to live by an objective truth that defines right from wrong. Though, how do we know that objective truth is reality? Better yet, what makes that truth Christianity? To illustrate, I'd like to show you two equations. The formatting was better on my computer, sorry. You won't get it anyway. These equations, developed by Gottman and Murray, believe it or not, predict how well couples will stay together. So, for the top one over there, 
On the right-hand side, we have all the things that affect a wife's mood, including her husband's actions. And on the left side, we have her response. So if you plot the wife's response on the y-axis of a graph and the effects of the husband on the x-axis, the IHW term tells you whether a little negativity from the husband makes the wife response change a little negative or a lot negative. On the bottom, you can see the husband is a little annoying and the more annoying and then please die annoying. <laughs> and then the numbers are, you know, zero annoying, big annoying. I didn't have good numbers for that part. Now, if the husband pushes his wife to a certain point, anything more positive will likely lead to a stable conversation with love and positivity. But if the husband pushes his wife's mood to another point, she will spiral out and lose her cool. And this point <laughs> is called the negativity threshold. It seems like common sense that a couple that stays together has a high negativity threshold and that the spouses can be pushed further without it being a big deal. Giving each other room to be themselves and let the little things slide is what most of us see on TV and we model our own marriages after, figuring it's what will make us last. It turns out, in a study done by OkCupid, the exact opposite is true. Only bringing stuff up if it's a big deal is detrimental to your relationship. And couples that allow each other to complain and constantly repair the small stuff have a much higher probability of staying together. That would mean that their negativity threshold is much lower. Talking about the small stuff and working on even the most minor of inconveniences is how you make a marriage last. In other words, there is mathematical proof to not let the sun go down on your anger. We have discovered through the most objective medium possible, mathematics, that the biblical principle of resolving things quickly, no matter how small, was correct all along. Study after study shows that things like two-parent households, simple living, marital resolve, and creation stewardship are all objective measurable ways of doing things better. Following an objective truth about what is best turns out to be the key to living a successful and fruitful life. It would be foolish to look at this data and conclude that whatever simply makes you happy is the best way to live. If you don't believe the Bible, at least believe the experts. Now, lastly, I think it is best to consider the words of Trappist monk Thomas Merton from his book, No Man is an Island. Love must be based on truth. A love that loves blindly merely for the sake of loving is hatred rather than love, since it actually cares nothing for the truth and never considers that it may go astray. It proves itself to be selfish. It does not seek the true advantage of the beloved or even our own. Pluralism, at its root, is a philosophy intent on creating harmony and coexistence at expense of the truth. Truth is important because from it stem our beliefs, and from our beliefs stem our actions. If we believe in a falsehood that we consider the truth or no truth at all, our actions cannot be called love 
for the truth is an expression of God's love. But when we strip love of truth in the name of love, we create hate. Hate for our neighbor, our family, and even the unbeliever. Hate because it cares not what happens to them, only that we get the chance to love. This is what happens to pluralism. In an attempt to encompass all and drive out the pain of exclusiveness found within spirituality, it simply creates more hatred. Now, in our current culture, pluralism dominates to a degree. Ideas like tolerance and political correctness are things that every Christian has to balance with their own ideas that may come across as painful and disrespectful. So how do we share our faiths in this challenging context? To answer this, I did a recent study. What I did was I looked at the founders of Christianity. Mainly, what does the Christian tradition say about the life of the apostles after Christ? Not surprisingly, 12 out of 12, that's 100% for those of you who are not good with math, of the original disciples of Jesus were martyred. Not just killed, but tortured, executed, beaten, and exiled, all because they spread the gospel in a hostile world. Blessed are the persecuted. The gospel of Christ is one of the most profound, it is the most profound message this world has ever received. It is a message filled with love, grace, acceptance, and amazing peace. But it does not come without danger. Jesus knew that his disciples would be outcast and persecuted because of what he asked of them. And that doesn't change just because you and I live in a more advanced society. So where does that leave the disciple of today? It leaves us in the exact same place as 2,000 years ago. We walk the walk, we talk the talk, and we spread the gospel wherever we are. Persecution will follow. And because of our newfound perspective that looks to the kingdom of God, we find the peace and joy to carry on despite the world around us. If we look solely towards the government or our own might to relieve us of this pain, we will fail. We must expect persecution in our lives at some point and in some form. The issue for the Christian is not how to evade persecution or force others to be nice to us. The issue is how to find resolve in Christ to persevere and share the gospel despite the dangers. The dangers we happen to face today just happens to be that people think we're bigots and intolerant. The church is a hospital to the sick, a map to the lost, and the bride of Christ. But it does not come without a warning that you enter at your own risk. Now, knowing how to address pluralism and remain resilient in today's culture are valuable assets. But what we've not addressed is the way that Christians have failed in their current attempts to reach these people. Look at the way, looking at the way that we treat not only the pluralist, but also each other. I can determine no other cause than a lack of compassion and a surplus of hypocrisy. 
In John 13, 34 through 35, we read, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Too often, we fall short of the expectations Jesus had for us as disciples. We may know all the right things, but that's not enough if we don't have the character to complement it. I keep talking about pluralism as this college campus politically correct idea, and some of it is. The pluralism discussed in Christian media that we all fear is about tolerance and everyone being right. But there's another form of pluralism that we practice within the church. So often we think about pluralism as something that's unique to outsiders, and we divorce it from the pluralism rampant in our churches today. It's easy to overlook because we know Jesus is the only way. But in the Western church, we often fail to practice this. Yes, the same thing responsible for sexual liberation, relativistic truth, and tolerance to the point of intolerance is all throughout our churches. And until we recognize that tendency in us, how could we ever hope to have compassion on anyone else? When I first defined pluralism, I described it as two states coexisting. I said it becomes self-refuting when two mutually excluding things try to exist alongside each other. Well, in the church, we have the same problem. In the church, we have pluralism, but we call it something slightly fancier. Idolatry. Think about it. How many of us believe that the gospel of Christ and the things that we want, but that he is clearly against, can coexist? Jesus clearly points to this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus was explicit about this for a reason. He does not share. So let me ask you, how is it any different for one person to believe that the spiritualities of Hinduism and Christianity are both truth, and another to admit to following Christ, yet never renounce his ways of consumerism. Pluralists use their philosophy to argue that no one's lifestyle is invalid, yet says that the lifestyle of spiritually exclusive people, that's us, is bigoted. Jesus says to love your enemy no matter what, yet we slander and disrespect our own brothers and sisters. How are the two not the same? How is it different for one person to believe that you make your own truth about spirituality or gender and one to believe that they make their own truth about Jesus? The way of Christ is an all-or-nothing deal based on an objective truth that has been set in its entirety so that no follower can distort it and still be a follower. Yet we willingly distort it every day. This quote comes from the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. In it, the narrator is a demon writing to his nephew, giving pointers on how to lead a certain man astray. Screwtape picks up. We do want and want very much to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. 
but failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands and then work him onto the stage at which, he, at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. For the enemy will not be used as, an in, as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might as well think they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest pharmacy. What Lewis illustrates here is our tendency to yoke Christ to what we want simply as a means to an end. To what end that is, is unique to every believer. But who among us has never quoted Christ as simply proof for what we want? Who among us has never tried to bend the knee of Christ to our heart? This here is one of where, is where one of our greatest downfalls comes from. Picketers, hateful protests, and yes, even Facebook arguments stem from our church pluralism. By yoking the gospel of Christ with our pride and our egos, we create a situation where we are no longer the humble messengers of a higher power, but instead take it as a personal affront when people refuse to accept our truth. It's not you they rejected, but we chain Christ to the very thing he demands us to lay down, our egos. The gospel is no longer compassion to the sheep led astray. It's weaponized, and it's possessed by us. We can only escape our own twisted Christian form of pluralism when we start empathizing with the sin of others that still affects us, who already know Christ. It cures us of our arrogance. From here, we can finally begin to understand how to lovingly and appropriately approach our friends who have yet to know Christ. By acknowledging that we are also guilty of pluralism in our own spirituality, both individual and corporate, we become less critical of the pluralist we seek to introduce to Christ. No, we cannot excuse any of it. In fact, we as the body should actively be searching to purge ourselves of following two masters. Especially in the West, we need to understand what true gospel living is. But by living out the example of Christ in this world, the real example of Christ, we can begin to make headway in attracting others to a life of selflessness, compassion, and peace that we are called to lead. Earlier, I talked about the Thomas Merton passage where he says that love without truth is hate. What we must never forget is that an even higher power gave us this message in 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Yes, the love that is without truth is hate, but the truth that is without love is pointless. It falls on deaf ears. Only when we speak with love love that is embodied by the scriptures with kindness, patience, humility, selflessness, protection, hope, and perseverance. Does the truth of what we say even matter? 
And only when we spread love with truth is it love and not another distorted version that hates. For us living in the 21st century Western church, these are difficult things to attain. This becomes even more difficult in our Washingtonian culture, a culture of beauty and progress that is ultimately still sick and broken. Pluralism is a worldview just like any other. The intentions, I believe, are good, and we must understand that if we are to challenge it. But that does not make the message of Christ any less amazing and most important. True. For those of you today who are just trying this Jesus thing out, I hope that this gives you a new perspective on your own worldview to wrestle with for a little bit. If you have any further questions, please ask anyone with a lanyard and try out our investigations class and get those difficult answers to your difficult questions. The exclusivity of Christianity is in the fact that it is the one right way. But all are still welcome. It is ultimately an inclusive relationship, inclusive for all, to a relationship of exclusivity. And for all my brothers and sisters out there, I hope that this encourages you to take the extra step towards the seeker in your life. Know that you have the tools and the spirit to challenge the sickness of the world and that there is a whole body behind you. Where there is fear, there is the possibility for courage. But do so with the kindness and humility typical of AC3, which Christ himself has shown to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at such a demanding topic. We know we are not called to be perfect, but that does not mean that because of our love, we strive to do what you would have of us. I speak with a monk when I say that I do not know that what I'm doing pleases you, but I have the hope that in my trying to do so, I please you. I may come across in my truth about you as mean or hurtful, and I may never have the courage to step up, but I will try. And I pray that all of us here will try and that you will equip us and unify us in this message and this drive to reach and to teach and to bring others in and do so in the way that you wanted. Not in the way that we want, but purely by the will of the Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.